San Quentin Prison sits 18 miles north of San Francisco, California, looking out over a picturesque view of the bay. The prison houses a range of inmates from relatively low-level offenders to California's entire death row population. San Quentin also has an organized baseball team for inmates that competes against local Bay Area rec teams, which are bussed in from the outside. But before they're allowed into the prison, visiting players must agree to some ground rules. You may not accept anything from anybody, like a letter that they want you to mail for somebody. And more importantly, you can't give anything to anybody, no matter what. It is a felony. It's serious stuff. And then they have to sign some waivers in case things turn violent when they're inside. And the other thing that I have to tell you is that it is prison policy that they do not negotiate for hostages. So let me just pass this around. Everybody sign one, and then we'll be good to go. San Quentin's baseball team isn't without controversy. It raises a larger question central to prison administration and reform. Are prisons primarily for punishment or for rehabilitation? John Windham, an inmate who played for San Quentin's baseball team, has been incarcerated for the last 29 years for aiding and abetting a homicide as a teenager. John called our producer Adam from prison the night before a parole hearing this summer, and he offered a unique perspective on the baseball team and on prison more generally. How do you deal with people who would say, like, I don't think you deserve baseball? Either you want me to be better or you want me to stay as I was. You can't have it both ways, right? And baseball is a way of healing, and we hurt people because we was hurt. So you want us to stay in that hurt and continue to get out and victimize other people that feel that way? Because we're coming back. 90% of the people in prisons come back to the community. Who and what do you want returning to your community? I'm Gotham Chopra from Religion of Sports. This is Why Sports Matter. I was so impressed with, frankly, the quality of the team. These are very low-cost programs that have the potential to have a huge impact. These were men who really wanted to play ball. In this episode, we look at sports and rehabilitation through the lens of prison reform and the lived experiences of people who have been on the inside. I don't have very many fears in life, but one of them is what I would call a loss of freedom. That's Will Brandenberger. He's been on one of the rec league teams that have played against the inmates in San Quentin, and he describes what that experience is like. You're walking into a situation where people who... You know, 50% have probably done some form of physical harm to another human being are now holding uh, a weapon, you know, whether it be a bat or a cleat or, uh, you know, the bottom of a base or whatever. Checklists of things you cannot bring in and reminds you that you're not allowed to give the inmates anything and the classic line of uh, we are not in the business of negotiating in case you become a hostage from one second you're standing in a parking lot uh, that you're very much used to, like any other parking lot, to the next second you're smack in the middle of a jail uh, in their rec yard. And there was a crowd waiting for them. 150 to 250 inmates. There's the natural reaction, and then there's the reaction that kind of takes over. 
The natural reaction, of course, is, hey, be on your guard. You never know. And then there, of course, is, okay, I grew up a pretty open-minded person. These are human beings. I remember one thing was I was trying to concentrate on who do I look in the eye and who do I don't look in the eye. <laughs> the field looked like most other rec league baseball fields. You see what, what looks like a baseball field because it's got four bases, pretty much an all-dirt infield. It's got sparse to okay grass on the outfield, but there are no fence, really. You know, there's basically people walking around the track getting their exercise who, for lack of a better term, create the fence in the outfield. When the game started, we'll find out pretty quickly that the inmates could straight up play. We got blown out by them, and I, that was the first game I played. And I was so impressed with, frankly, the quality of the team. The final score was like 14 to 2. And there was an appropriate amount of ribbing going on, not by the San Quentin Giants, but by their buddies who were, you know, by that time lining the fence in a lot of cases. So, inappropriately so, we got smacked. After the game, the inmates and players would gather and talk, just like after any other game. When the game ends is probably the most interesting or at least best, it's the best moment probably of the day. You line up like you do with almost every, at the end of every sport, and you go through the line and you high five. Those high fives turned into handshakes with looking in you in the eye. So it wasn't a fist bump, it wasn't a high five. It was a true, like, thank you. This was excellent. You know, this was a real privilege. And a true look in the eye. You also get the feeling that some of that is. They wanted to soak up every moment of connection with, with the outside and thankfulness that, you know, at least a small group of the population would want to come in and interact, shine a good light on folks that are probably otherwise shunned a little bit by society. And so you end up having some running conversations with folks who really pretty much wanted to talk to you. One of those inmates on the field that day was John Windham a talented athlete who, in his youth, had the potential to play at a very high level. But that was almost 30 years ago. I always played when I was younger, and I've been locked up for 28 years, so I kind of I miss my chance at actually playing on a higher level. When he was young, John had a hard time staying out of trouble. I can say I was a hothead back then as a kid. I got caught up in that feeling that I used to get. That anger and rage, that feeling that, that it's like an addiction, right? Wanting that feeling, because I always had it on the sports field. And I, and I didn't cut it off when I left the sports field. Kathy Williams, John's older sister, basically raised him. My mother had four children. Me being the eldest, I kind of wind up taking on a role of caring for everyone in the house. But when John came, that was my baby. He was always a very active child, so when he started doing sports, it was like the ball was an extension of him. And I just wish I would have had the opportunity to watch him grow and do this professionally. But that wasn't what happened. But then, Kathy had to move after her husband joined the military, leaving John behind, feeling brokenhearted and lost. I remember it's like an image burned in my brain when we were in the car and we were getting ready to drive off. And 
John was holding on to the door handle saying, don't leave me, don't leave me. He went around to, he was going around to all the doors saying, you can't go. It haunts me sometimes because that was a really tender, tender age. And when I left, he was lost. There was no one there when he got home. So he turned into a latchkey kid. He was seeking somebody to follow, somebody to be with him. When he was 19 years old, John was convicted of aiding and abetting a homicide. I went with an individual to go uh, retrieve some tires um, that was taken from him, and uh, five people were shot that night. Uh, innocent people were shot for no reason at all. Uh, and I was sentenced for aiding and abetting for and actually being with this person that uh, committed that crime. 15 to life. 15 to life. And just like that, any shot he had of being a professional athlete was gone. He's 49 now, and his athletic prime was spent in prison, and then the rest of his life after that. He's applied for parole several times and been rejected. If not for baseball, John doesn't know what kind of man he'd be today. It's a blessing, and it's a joy, man, to be able to do that. The walls are down when we're on this field. I'm in heaven right now. This is where I stay at, right? (laughs) Till 8 o'clock and they say lock it up. Ain't going back to jail, right? (laughs) Until then, we free. We free. The field even has its own name. The Field of Dreams. That was a creation of Chaplain Smith. That's Kent Philpott, a pastor from Mill Valley, which is a small town near San Quentin. He's been volunteering at the prison for decades and has been one of the baseball team's coaches for much of the past 20 years, ever since the program started in 1995. It started when Chaplain Earl Smith was the first African-American chaplain uh, in the prison system. And one day, Earl walked over from the Protestant chapel into the Catholic chapel and There, sitting at the desk, a clerk, uh, a fellow by the name of Jimbo, and on the desk was a catcher's mitt. So Chaplain Smith asked Jimbo if he knew how to use that glove, and he said yes. And that was the starting point for Earl putting together uh, the baseball team. Kent loved coaching the San Quentin team. It was a lot different than coaching Little League or coaching high school, these were men uh, who really wanted to play ball. They were easy to coach because they really wanted to do it. They didn't like losing games. They just gave it everything. People ask him all the time if he ever feels he's risking his safety coaching in the prison. Often I had brought my wife down to the lower yard and never feared a single thing. She never had a fear. I didn't either. The guys would tell me, your wife is safer here than any place in the world. Nothing will ever happen to her here. And that's the way those guys are. One of the things you find out there, if you're a volunteer and you play it straight, nothing's going to happen to you. But Kent also hears from a lot of people who take issue with the prisoners getting to play baseball, even some rec league players. 
I've had members of baseball teams who came in who played against San Quentin teams and in the conversations in and out of the prison or stand in the parking lot while we're getting ready to go out up into the count gate and go through, have expressed a real disdain for this. I've been accused of coddling the criminals. Kent has seen the way prison breaks men down. Prison is no fun for anybody, including San Quentin. It can be a frightening experience, very traumatic for a lot of people. And it's not unusual to have somebody say, I've been here five, six years, and I'm just starting to begin to relax a little bit. Uh, I just, my last time there, just a couple of weeks ago, a guy was telling me, I finally think I'm adjusting. I'm not scared to death all the time. I can finally sleep. I can finally walk around and feel okay. Well, good, some people say. Let them feel fear. Let them be punished. Many might not react well to hearing inmates like John Windham, a man convicted of aiding and abetting a murder, calling the baseball team a blessing and a joy, saying that baseball makes him feel free. There was an elderly lady in our church who has a caregiver, and this caregiver took her to church, and we always have a breakfast at first, and she was with us at the breakfast table, this younger woman. It came up that her husband had been killed by someone who was now at San Quentin, and the conversation moved to, well, Several of us at that table were involved in ministries at San Quentin Prison. And she said, I don't like those programs. That guy that killed my husband, he needs to rot. Personally, I support progressive prison reform. But if I lost my wife because a San Quentin inmate murdered her, I'd probably want her killer to rot too. Do prisoners deserve to play baseball? Adam asked John Windham that question when John called him from prison this summer on the night before his parole hearing. What would you say to someone that came up to you and said, when I think of people in prison, like, I don't want them having that experience because, you know, I want them to be punished. How do you deal with people who would say, like, I don't think you deserve baseball? If I stayed in baseball, right, I wouldn't be the type of person that you've grown to despise. So it's the very reason, do you want me to stay the person that you despise, or do you want me to be the type of person that you can welcome into your community, right? So you can't have it both ways. Either you want me to, to, to be better, or you want me to stay as I was, right? And baseball is a way of healing, and we hurt people because we was hurt. So you want us to stay in that hurt and continue to get out and victimize other people that feel that way? Because we're coming back. 90% of the people in prisons come back to the community. Who and what do you want returning to your community? 90% of inmates return to free society. Is that right? I wasn't so sure, so I asked Lois Davis, an expert on prison reform at the world-renowned think tank, the Rand Corporation. My work is really focused on the intersection between public health and the criminal justice system. Regardless of whether or not you're supportive of rehabilitation, the, the key thing to remember is that 
Over 90% of them will eventually return home. They'll come back to your local community. We have over 2 million people currently incarcerated in the United States in state and federal prisons, so that doesn't include jails. And of those, about 700,000 return to the community each year. Within three years, we typically see between 30 to 40 percent will be reincarcerated. So that is the, the scope of the problem that we're dealing with. The question is, do you want them to sit in their cell and just serve time, not really doing anything to be able to better themselves? What kind of men and women do we want returning to our communities when they get out of prison? And when they're out, what are the factors that lead them to reoffend? Lois has studied these questions and come to some pretty dramatic evidence-based conclusions that programs such as the San Quentin baseball team have a dramatic impact. In addition to sports programs, San Quentin also offers qualified inmates many other educational programs, from vocational training to Shakespearean theater to GED and college-level classes. San Quentin is not the norm. All of that, even having organized sports like baseball, that's unusual. Lois has heard the same criticisms as Ken about quote-unquote coddling the criminals. I often get asked when I'm uh, briefing or talking about this issue by folks in the audience that say, why should we care? They're there because they did something. We're not there to coddle them. They're there to serve their time. I think it's important for people to realize the very fact that we incarcerate someone, that's pretty severe punishment. I mean, that, it's not that we're sending them to a Hilton hotel or something like that. I mean, it really, it really is. They're, they're housed in pretty, you know, harsh settings. When we think about coddling, I, I mean, that phrase, I, I think it's important for people to recognize the fact that someone's going to prison for 5, 10, 25 years, they're being punished. There's no doubt about that. And she hears people complain about the cost of these programs. Baseball sports in, at San Quentin, those aren't being paid for by taxpayers. Uh, my understanding is that actually is coming from donations from various employees, of employers, for example, as well as you have volunteers coming into the San Quentin to help really manage that, those sports. And so, so it's important to realize it's not that it's taken away from you as a taxpayer or that it's taken away from your children. It really is. These are very low-cost programs that have the potential to have a huge impact. Lois has found in her research that these programs even save money in the long term by reducing rates of recidivism, another word for reincarceration. What we were able to show is that, that if you educate people, what you do is you reduce the, uh, their risk of being recidivating by 13 percentage points. So that's a dramatic drop in risk. And, and there's very few programs that um, have that kind of an effect. It's really, often if you look at other rehabilitative programs, it's maybe a 2 to 5% drop in risk of recidivism. So if we have to make a trade-off as to which programs to fund for those who are incarcerated, education clearly bubbles up to the top because it has such a dramatic effect. And again, it is such a low-cost program. These educational programs teach inmates hard skills that will help them get jobs when they are released, which is critical to effectively reintegrating back into free society. But often, those skills alone are not enough. You may train someone, for example, to become a welder, but that individual may have little history or, or experience of what it means to work in an organized workplace, what it means to work in a structured environment where you now have a boss or a leader, where you have to work as part of a team, where you have to um, 
commit to practice. We had to commit to showing up on time every day. Those are soft skills that are very important for people to develop. Baseball teaches them that sort of thing as well. And so those kinds of skills are important because it's not only helping them in terms of their physical health, but also in terms of really increasing their self-esteem and and starting to learn what it means to be part of a team and to commit to showing up for the rest of the team members and doing your best. I wish people could just see the growth in us, the rehabilitation that goes on on that field. I know I'm ready. I know I'm ready to be out there in, in the world. We've all seen brightly colored, perfectly crafted smoothie bowls on Instagram and Pinterest. But honestly, who has the time to make something like that? I don't. In an ideal world, you'd be able to make those picture-perfect meals without trekking to the supermarket, chopping everything up, really without doing any of the work. Guess what? With Daily Harvest, you can. Daily Harvest delivers perfectly portioned cups of frozen organic fruits and vegetables directly to your door. The recipes all stay fresh in the freezer until you're ready to eat. Everything takes just one step and five minutes max to prepare. Each Daily Harvest single-serving cup comes ready to blend or heat. Doesn't get any easier than this, guys. Add water or milk to a smoothie or just heat up a harvest bowl. All their ingredients are carefully sourced for maximum nutrient content and flavor. You can actually see all the ingredients when you open the cup. It's the perfect thing to have on hand for those days when you need something fast. With more than 50 ready-to-blend smoothies, savory harvest bowls, soups, and breakfast bowls, there's a daily harvest cup for every single craving. So go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code WSM to get three cups free in your first box. That's promo code WSM for three free Daily Harvest Cups at daily-harvest.com, daily-harvest.com. Upstart has revolutionized how we borrow money by going beyond the traditional FICO scores to offer personal loans, taking into account factors like job experience and education when determining your interest rate. Yep, they actually reward you on your education and your job history in the form of a smarter interest rate. Adam, you use this, haven't you? I signed up, yes. All right, we'll take that. <laughs> Quick and easy. Checking your upstart rate is free and has no effect on your credit score. Is your credit score pretty good to start with? Adam? I have a great credit score. Okay. Pay for just about anything. Two minutes is all it takes to go online and find your upstart rate. Checking your upstart rate is always free and won't affect your credit. So you can obsess over it yeah. the same way you obsess over everything in this podcast. Yeah, wonderful. That's <laughs> great for my mental health. The best part, once your loan is approved, the funds will be transferred to you the very next business day. The next day, it's time to party. Hurry to upstart.com slash WSM to find out how low your upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes two minutes and a reminder, it's not going to affect your credit. That's upstart.com slash WSM. John Windham's applied for parole several times, but to no avail. It hurts to get denied parole. As we alluded to earlier, the night before John's latest parole hearing this past summer, he called our producer. I want to get back out there and not teach kids how to be good athletes. I want to teach them how to be good people that happen to play sports. And I so feel I have what it takes to give that to them. 
I so want to give it to them. I just want to help them be better people. And a lot of people have taught me how to play sports, but they didn't teach me how to be a good person. They didn't teach me how to deal with trauma. They didn't teach me how to deal with bullies. They didn't teach me how to deal with peer pressure. They didn't teach me how to deal with abandonment. They didn't teach me how to deal with those resentments I had for my father not being in my life. You know what I mean? I want to be there for them kids and teach them how to be good people that turn out to be good athletes. Because whether they be an athlete or not, I know we raised a good person. You know, so that's my goal. More than anything else is to help make good people. It's easier to raise a good child than it is to fix a broken man. When you go to corrections, you're supposed to go to be rehabilitated. And that's definitely not the case. A lot of people go to be better criminals. That's Karan Butler, a former NBA All-Star who spent 14 seasons in the NBA and won a championship with the Dallas Mavericks. A lot of people come out more worse off than they ever were because the trauma is never really addressed. He could have easily become John Windham, a talented athlete whose potential to play professional sports vanished after he was sentenced to prison. Karan grew up in a chaotic home in Racine, Wisconsin. Seeing my, you know, my uncle... You know, bringing in garbage bags of money, seeing uh, the police raid, raid our home, seeing and hearing noise upstairs of, you know, robberies, seeing uh, my aunties and my cousins, you know, hogtied for drug money, seeing us transport family members through the trunk of cars because they couldn't be seen in public because they was, you know, fighting indictments and things like that. Like, it's crazy. And I, and I remember all of it like it was yesterday. I remembered all of it. He became a drug dealer, joined a gang, and spent his youth in and out of juvenile detention centers. My introduction to the gang was, you know, my older uncle was a BGD, a black gangster disciple. My, my other uncle was a BD. Our family predominantly was gangster disciples, and that's what I ran with. Earliest memories, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was fun. I, I felt like it was normal, you know, um, even with all the chaos and everything around me. You know, somebody stopping the car, sticking their hand in it, and the car pulling off. You know, that was normal to see that. It was normal to see, you know, it was crazy, but it was it was normal. Karan began selling drugs when he was young. And that's why I started paying attention to math class even more, you know, because, you know, they was like, hey, you really intrigued by these ounces and stuff. I was like, shit, I'm just trying to add up my money right. Once we started getting more successful in the dope game where we started hustling and, you know, $20 start turning to $100. $150 start turning to $1,000 in your pocket. $1,000 in your pocket start turning to a couple thousand. Now you that person that everybody want to rob. Because I had to start carrying pistols and stuff like that. And I wasn't a gun dude. Like, shit, I was about 12 and a half. One of the main reasons he began selling drugs was to help his mother. It's nothing like seeing your mom come in after doing I don't know, 16, 17, 18 hour shifts and then just, you know, falling out on the couch because she's she's so tired or even going to sleep in the station wagon because she can't even make it inside the house because she's tired or going to sleep at the stoplight, stuff like that. I was watching that as a kid and I was just like, damn, you know, she she's doing all this, you know, for three hundred dollars, you know, four hundred dollar rent, stuff like that. I'm like, shit, I can I can go get that and. 30 minutes or one good 15-minute run around the block, and, and, and that's that's it. She used to always tell me, like, you, 
you want to be like your uncles? You want to, you know, what, what are you doing with yourself? You're not thinking. You're not thinking right. I'm trying to work hard for us and you send us back, you know, and telling me the real deal, like telling me, you know, all the things that I need to hear. But I just didn't want to hear that. And I also thought like that ain't that ain't gonna happen to me. Like they were stupid. Like that, that like mom totally different. Like I'm doing this, I'm like I ain't doing that. She like crying, you gonna get in trouble, go to jail, you gonna do it. And I was just like, No, nah, it ain't happen to me. He was just twelve years old the first time he got arrested. When I'm hustling or I'm doing what I'm doing, like I know that at some point I may get caught up and uh, you know, I'm gonna be gone for three to five years first time around like if i get caught dirty 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 i got three to five and i was okay with that by 15 karan had been in and out of juvenile detention centers many times when you're around men and when you're in in an environment of you know corrections you never show weakness but you know mentally behind that it was so many layers to me but behind that i was i was shocked i was scared i was i was weak i was extremely fragile um, I was in a crazy place. I was confused. Uh, I, I need. I needed direction. I, I, I did it all, man. I, I read the Bible. I wrote letters. Uh, received numerous letters. I, it was tough. It was extremely tough. He still remembers clearly how ineffective the prison system was. You're supposed to go to be rehabilitated. And that's definitely not the case. A lot of people go to be better criminals. A lot of people come out more worse off than they ever were. Because the trauma is never really addressed. For a teenager at the time being incarcerated with, you know, murders, you know, people that had the worst of worst cases. I was exposed to everything. Even more so than what I was exposed to in the streets, because at least I can dodge them dudes. At least I had the freedom to like, man, them. I ain't going over there. They over there. I'm a. But now this dude may be my celly. <laughs> I got to deal with him 23 hours a day. I got to talk to him about this shit every day. Like, it's terrible. But a main reason Kron avoided spending most of his life in prison was basketball. He even played for a prison basketball team when he was incarcerated. They would actually let you leave without shackles you travel on a bus and you you play opposing correctional facilities and sometimes even boys and girls clubs and then they bring you back sports saved my life it literally saved my life someone asked me that before like where would you be without basketball i said dead simple as that basketball gave him hope something to dream about a way to imagine a better future After an especially bad stint in prison when he was 15, where he'd gotten thrown into solitary confinement, Karan stopped selling drugs, got a job at Burger King, and committed to making the most out of himself as a basketball player. Whenever I got into like a crazy place and I needed to vent, let off some of that frustration, I I worked out. Worked out hard. You know, like sports are a reflection of life. You got to be able to have camaraderie with people. You got to be able to you know, uh, deal with situations on the fly. You got to be able to react, you know, and adjust and all these things. So I found out that I was really good at basketball and I was able to make a living for myself. Scouts and college coaches started showing up at his games. He'd quit selling drugs for good and his future finally looked bright. 
Okay, guys, let's talk about Four Sigmatic coffee, the mushroom coffee that we've all been having a lot of. So my newest favorite is Lion's Mane during the day and Rishi at night. Apparently, you can put the Lion's Mane in your smoothie, and that's really cool. One of our producers told me that. I haven't tried it, but I will. Look, I like these products because they're less acidic than normal coffee. Extremely high quality. They have no pesticides or no mycotoxins. They're made with 100% organic Arabica coffee beans. They're jitter-free. Tastes just like coffee and not like mushrooms, which is, you know, a big perk. Includes powerful antioxidants and immune-boosting properties. Boosts your brain and productivity. Long used by the Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation that I would know something about, or at least you would think I would. And of course, they reduce stress, improve concentration, memory, and alertness. And best of all, most important of all, tastes great. Right now, when you head to foursigmatic.com slash WSM, you'll get 15% off your entire order. That's 15% off any order placed on Four Sigmatic's website. But you have to use my special URL, mine, foursigmatic.com slash WSM. That's spelled F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash WSM. One day when Karan was around 16, Detective Rick Geller showed up at the house where Karan was living after being released on parole. Geller had a search warrant and he found 15.3 grams of crack cocaine in the garage. Because of my past already and my lengthy record, I could have been facing 10 to 15 years. The drugs belonged to someone else who lived there, but there was no way for the detective to know that in that moment. Everything pointed to Karan being immediately returned to prison for violating his parole and for a lengthy sentence. But something about the situation wasn't adding up for Detective Geller. There was a lot of incidentals that just didn't make sense to me. Like, for instance, I had a chance to talk to him inside the house. He had burns on his hands. And I asked him, where did you get burns on your hands? From working at Burger King. We pat him down and he's got $11 in his pocket not consistent with what a dope dealer normally would be carrying. It just didn't match up, I guess. I I felt like he was one of those people in the wrong place at the wrong time. Geller decided not to arrest or book her on for a major new drug offense. It was a minor miracle. I'll be 26, 25 years old, getting out all those dreams of playing basketball or doing all these things will be gone. He went on to get a scholarship at UConn. And after three seasons there, he was drafted in the first round by the Miami Heat. Then he played 14 seasons in the NBA, making millions of dollars and winning a championship. And now, Karan often returns to his old neighborhood in Wisconsin and talks to people there about what it took for him to get out. Understand that we're capped out in this neighborhood and they got ceilings all around us. So... You got to kind of use your imagination when you dream, you know, and think, think bigger and larger and, and, and don't be deflated by like people negative vibes saying that you can't do something. Use that as fuel. And that's why San Quentin inmate John Windham is grateful that he's not the same man he was 29 years ago when he made the decisions that landed him in prison. I made some bad choices. But those choices doesn't reflect who I am. It reflects something I've done. Bad choice that I made as a child, right? This place allows you to grow up, though. 
It was a blessing to be able to come to this yard. It's a blessing. He's changed a lot the last three decades. You have transgender here, um, you have gays here, and you have all these different LGBTQ community people here, and people seem to just call them all gay or all fag or don't like them because, you know, or whatever. And I feel by me being a leader and a role model in the yard, if I can go interact with that community, I'll give someone else the courage to go and actually get to, you know, meet that person or talk to that person as well. And that's what's been happening. Uh, it's been less um, uh, violence perpetrated against them, right? And uh, I noticed the change. I never liked bullies, right? Never liked bullies. And, um, to be a part, an ally to those, to those brothers and sisters in here um, is big to me. His sister Kathy has seen the change in John as well. He's grown into this amazing man behind the bars. I believe in God. And if he says that we can repent, and repentance is a change, if he says that it can happen, it can. And John says that there's one primary reason why, baseball. For me, baseball is my way of healing. To be out there on that field, it's a, we didn't have that sense of community. That's why we violated that trust and we hurt those in our community, right? You want us to be out there on that field because it builds a sense of community. It breaks down all those barriers prejudices, racism, anger, gangs, any, all that stuff is, is challenged on that field. Your criminality is challenged on that field. And, and I'm thankful to God for that. And get this, the day after he called us from prison at his parole hearing, John finally got the answer he'd been wanting for a long, long time. He's been granted parole. There's a waiting period, 120 days max, but after 29 years, he's getting out. Soon, he'll re-enter free society, one of the 700,000 inmates leaving prison and returning to our communities this year. The baseball team at San Quentin is a fascinating experiment in prison reform, and programs like it have achieved significant reduction in reincarceration. But it's not a cure-all, nor is it currently available to the great majority of men and women in American prisons. For John, though, it means everything. Do you want me to stay the person that you despise? Or do you want me to be the type of person that you can welcome into your community? Right? So you can't have it both ways. Either you want me to be better or you want me to stay as I was. Between 90 to 95% return to your local community. Again, you can't incarcerate your way out of this problem. You have to recognize that, that eventually they will be back in your community, and you have to think about then, what do you want that to look like? And baseball is a way of healing, and we hurt people because we was hurt. So you want to sustain that hurt and continue to get out and victimize other people that feel that way? Because we're coming back. 90% of the people in prisons come back to the community. Who and what do you want returning to your community? Baseball makes men better.
Why Sports Matter is a religion of sports and Cadence 13 production. Adam Schlossman is our producer. Brandon Sneed, our writer. Music is from Michael Kramer, Chris Basil, and Rich Berner, our editors, and Kevin Richter, our engineer. Amit Sankaran is the executive producer. Luciano Del Villar and Joe Levin are associate producers. Special thanks to Chris Corcoran, Rich Cook, Matt Havia, Sean Cherry, Giselle Peretz, Eric LeDrew, Carrie Nelson, and Parker Reese. Credit to PBS NewsHour for several of the clips used in this episode. Subscribe to Why Sports Matter on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode and know some friends that may enjoy it as well, please share it with them. And of course, we'd be very grateful for a positive review and rating if you've got time. Thanks for listening. See you next week.